G'day, it's Giles here. Welcome to another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. Before the episode begins, I just wanted to uh, make a quick apology. Um, the last episode that went up was three or four weeks ago, and normally uh, we try and get these episodes up on a weekly basis, but unfortunately we've had some, or I've had some uh, medical emergencies in the family over the last couple of weeks, and so haven't been able to devote the time to the podcast uh, that I normally would. But uh, that is all past, thank goodness, and uh, everyone's well, so here we are. Episode 22, Buying Games. This is Games in Schools and Libraries. The podcast about board, card and digital games and the ways in which they can find a place in schools or at the local library. Hosting provided by the Games for Educators website, www.g4ed.com. Welcome to Games in Schools and Libraries. My name is Giles Pritchard. I'm a teacher at St George's Road Primary School, Shepparton, Australia. I use games in my Grade 3-4 classroom, as well as for our Games Club, our Games Day, and many other purposes. You can also find me on my blog, castlebymoonlight.blogspot.com, or on Twitter as P. And I'm Donald Dennis. I'm the business technology and games librarian at the Georgetown County Library System in Georgetown County, South Carolina. You can come and find me uh, Monday through Thursday where I'm either running the business center or I'm playing games with the kids. Also, you can find me at the On Board Games podcast at onboardgames.net and on Twitter as On Board Games. Excellent. So how have things been going at the library, Don, since our last recording? Uh, well, things have been going great. Uh, you know, Never a dull moment at the Georgetown Library. I'm, you know, busy setting up for our spring and summer activities, which actually I guess we're probably into spring by the time this comes out. <laughs> it probably will be, yeah. Yeah, no, things have been going great at uh, school. I talked a little bit last time, or last couple of episodes, about a program we've been running at school um, to do with the Smith family, um, which is a, a charity organisation uh, that helps run different programs in schools, usually homework clubs and the like. Um, we've been running a games program at our school and that is finished up for this year but um, has been a, a very successful uh, series of uh, evenings. So, yeah, we're looking forward to next year already talking about that. So, good things. Well, that's pretty cool. So, I heard Smith flame. I was going to say, oh, don't give out anybody's name, but that's the name of the organization? Or it is, is that... yep. Okay, so... My fears of you violating somebody's privacy or confidentiality is not an issue. <laughs> Unfounded. All right. Well, good, good. Because I'd, I'd hate to think that you are running around blacking, blackening people's names. Where that's that's my job. So. <laughs> um, so just in case our listeners are wondering, whenever I mention, well, it'll be a while before this episode comes out or whatever. It's, it's not because Giles is getting these episodes released in a slow fashion. It's because... We came up with a great idea of, hey, let's record a bunch of episodes ahead of time. So if you're sending us feedback on these and you're wondering, well, why isn't Giles or Donald paying attention to what I'm saying? It's going to be because, or that's because for a while we're recording out ahead so that we don't ever have to skip an episode or skip a week and releasing an episode. So that's it. We're on too much on top of the ball as opposed to being, you know, far behind the game. So don't be surprised. <laughs> the one and only time uh, that I've ever been early on anything, Don. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had that problem too. Just ask Professor Nicholson. So, <laughs> I, I do have some news on the on the library front for me. Is it's now been about five years since I received my library five you know, since I received my library degree at uh, Syracuse University, and I just got contacted by one of the people in the office there saying. Oh, did you know that you never received your certificate of advanced study for digital libraries? And I was like, well, no, I did all the work. I thought I got that. And so they finally updated all of their records, got my internship information that I had done way back then, and I'm going to get my certificate. Yay, me. Oh, very good. <laughs> all this time, and I didn't know I was being undercredited for my work done. And as much as college costs, boy, howdy. 
you'd think that uh, that I'd have paid more attention to that. <laughs> uh, by the time these things wind to a close, it's usually you're more than happy to actually get out there and start doing them. Exactly, exactly. So, well, um, anyway, you were going to talk about what we're doing next. Yeah, this episode we're talking about buying games. So we're talking about um, building the game collection, maybe from nothing into something, um, and also, you know, what sort of uh, policies or ideas might be behind the way in which you build the collection, and also the the actual, you know, physicality of uh, getting the games, where you get them, where does the money come from, all of those sorts of things. So uh, that's this episode. Right, and we've touched on collection development before, but in every kind of educational setting or setting where you're not just kind of uh, spending your own money, you kind of have to plan how you're going to spend it. So we'll hit on that first, Um, and in fact, let's leap right into that. Uh, Do you have a collection development policy for your school? I think you've said that you do, sort of. We do, but it's more of an ad hoc approach. It's not really written down. Um, Since I'm the person, really, that has uh, instituted the games program at our school, I've been the driving force behind it. Um, I I had a concept of what I wanted to be able to to do with the games program, and as that has developed and and more things have come under that banner, um, our games day, for example, which has also grown to encompass uh, preschools, means that, 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 you know, we've changed our focus on what sort of games that we want to have. So our collection development policy really surrounded, um, from my point of view, making sure that we had a diverse collection that could deal with the age groups that we were um, facilitating. So for in- initially that was um, around the level that I taught, so grades 3, 4, 5 and 6, um, but then we started to extend that out to deal with the younger kids in our school as well, down to about the age of 5. And the last couple of years we've also started to push down even further to the ages of about four um, to help with the preschool kids that come into our games days so that's been a big consideration Uh, another consideration is also then on how the games are going to be used and what purpose are they going to be used for so as much as I've tried to make sure that the collection is diverse in terms of the age groups that it, it, it deals with, I've also tried to make sure that our game collection is diverse in terms of the subjects um, that the games are about, or at least the skills that are involved in those games. So a good balance of maths games and literacy games, um, shape games, and so on and so forth. So that's something else. Uh, and also I think the number of players Uh, for the games is something that has been a factor in the back of my mind when we're considering what sorts of um, games we want to get. And, you know, we went through, we've been through phases with this, Don. In the initial phases, in the initial phase, really, it was get as much as you can, you know. (laughs) Just build the collection at all costs. It doesn't matter necessarily what games they are. We just need to build that collection, build up something to use. Uh, And as time has gone on, it's really been a process of honing, of reflecting, finding that, of looking where what we're missing or what we're missing out on, what we're um, not being able to target, and then um, cherry-picking games that really fit those niches. Right. And in fact, uh, when I started building our collection at the Georgetown Library, it started off with, hey, we have this grant and we're trying to get activities for kids to come in and participate in. So I started off with, hey, we've I'm going to set aside this much money And with it, we're going to buy some games for kids to play just to see what will float and what won't. And with the initial set of games, uh, based on what our current use was, uh, it was pretty obvious that some of my selections, you know, some of them were great, but some of them were for people who are more used to playing games than necessarily some of uh, our patrons were used to playing. And so then after that, I was able to hone in and say, well, here's the age group of our guys, and they like something a little more conflict-oriented, or that uh, we need something to support this other program. And for that, I find that that I've had a much more success with those programs. Now, when purchasing games, if the more narrowly you can define the audience for the games that you're purchasing at that time, the better success that you're going to have when building your collection. And some of that's going to have to do with, are they used to playing games? What kind of other activities are they engaged in? What use are these games going to be placed? Because 
when we then started doing later, we had other grants that were coming in, like the hurricane grant that I've talked about before, or our finance grants, or, or anything like that. We could find games that were suitable or appropriate to the people who gave us the money. And you're responsible whenever you get money to make sure that that money gets spent correctly. And if it's not money that would normally be given to you, then you've got even more responsibility to say, look, we want to bring games into this program. We want to teach kids about some of the financial principles, you know, supply and demand or, or whatever it is. So here's a batch of games that have to do with these topics. And with that, you can then, you know, sort of look forward and find, um, you know, what kind of games you should be shopping for. Yeah, I think, you know, you know, it comes down to, to two, you know, if I can, if I can um, make up sort of two key words to sort of summarize um, where we were at. Initially, we were all about building, you know, the breadth of the collection, the more games, um, you know, the more different tables we could have going at the same time, it would facilitate games days, it would facilitate, um, you know, no group getting, getting, you know, bored or stagnating at a table or not having something, you know, different to play um, when, when it came to it. So building the breadth of the collection is important. But after we had managed to do that, what became important was building the depth of the, the collection. So being able to target younger ages or older ages, particular skill areas, um, particular learning areas and so on. And so those two key sort of factors, breadth and depth, were really um, driving forces in what we, you know, I suppose where we went, I suppose, characterised really the phases that we've been through in terms of honing and changing our game collection. Um, and and the, the, the issue with it, obviously, is that some of the ways that you gain games, that you get games into your collection, can mean that you, you don't necessarily have 100% control over what those game titles are, what those game boxes are. You know, if you're getting donations from companies, you're not deciding what goes in the box necessarily. It might be the company just sending you stuff. Um, and some that that's fantastic and, and, and wonderful and, and absolutely appreciated, you know, the generosity and all that sort of stuff. But it does sometimes mean that those games will sit um, to the side and be outside the ken of... Um, you know, what What really the kids are going to be getting out. They might be too complex, they might be too obtuse, um, they might be uninteresting, um, or whatever reason. But but I think, you know, these are some of the things that are worth considering. Right. And actually, I've found that when you get in games like that from a publisher, that you don't necessarily know what's going to be a hit or what's not going to be a hit, uh, or even useful to you. Uh, there's one game called uh, Shake and Take from uh, Out of the Box where one person's shaking a little coo uh, egg that has a die in it and the other person's rolls a die in its circling patterns or, or shapes on these little placemat-like things. And I thought, okay, this isn't going to be very exciting or it's not going to have a lot of appeal. And it ended up being loud, <laughs> so we can't always play it at the library. Um, but it also ended up being very exciting or engaging to the people participating. So even though it met none of our collection development policies, because you're not really learning anything that you are working on, your uh, perception acuity, uh, it's just one a game that's been very popular in our library. So, And since Out of the Box sent it to me to review on the podcast on board games, uh, you know, I went ahead and we donated it to the library. So it's there all the time now. Yep. So, Don, let's let's say you've got a collection policy in place, you've got a, a purpose. I think this is the key factor. We've talked about it before. Um, it's good to have a purpose. When you're setting up a game collection, you have an idea about the way in which these games are going to be used. Are they going to be used at a games club at lunchtimes? Are they going to be used in the games club after school? Um, are they going to be used... Um, you know, is a part of a, a normal classes to supplement or support curriculum? Are they going to be used to run, you know, conventions, um, big groups, small groups, all of those things? So you've got an idea of the purpose or the, the, the intended use of the games, and that can really help you decide what sorts of games that you that you want. Um, and then other peripheral issues like the ages of the kids and so forth then can help narrow that that choice range down to some specific titles. 
what are some of the secondary issues that you've encountered in terms of um, you know having games and getting games? Is there anything is there anything that's sort of in the back of your mind about the acquisition of games when you're looking at a couple of games? You know, one might leap up and say, oh, you know, and you think, oh, that looks fantastic, but there, there's some other perhaps issue in the back right. of the mind that's preventing you. Is is that happened, or is, are there any things there? One of the biggest things that we've had issues with and uh, is technology dependence. Rock Band was a very popular game with us, but not only is it loud and does it take up a lot of space, which yeah, the the volume of the game, especially in educational or uh, you know third space areas like the library, uh, is is a big concern. So we can't have somebody playing Rock Band all the time right next to the study area because the game room at the Georgetown Library is right next to all of our study tables. So <laughs> that's going to keep uh, keep the kids from being able to concentrate. The other thing is just technology dependence. Uh, you know, in this game, if we lose this peripheral for the game, so like if the drums go away, then is the game still going to be playable? And are we going to be willing to replace that drum set you know, if, or the microphone, because the microphone was a big one. It kind of imploded early on us. And fortunately that was the one that least people cared about, but you know, is the game going to be useful? Did we just buy the base game and some of the expansions only to three months later, find that some kid has torn up the thing or that maybe it wasn't stored correctly or whatever the problem is. And it's just not usable anymore. Yeah, this is a big issue, and I think it extends not just from digital games, you know, with those peripherals, but also into board games as well. Um, you know, when I when I look at a game or I'm thinking about what games I might get, um, I try and look them up online and look at lots of images of, of what actually comes in the box um, and, and try and read the rules on how they set up, um, you know, what pieces are involved, how intricate is the setup, because I find that if the game has got too many different lots of pieces um, or requires, you know, that sort of, <laughs> um, you know, really intricate uh, and involved and organised setup, then it's more likely to um, be impacted by missing pieces or by, you know, careless players and so forth. My ideal games have got, you know, not that many different sets of pieces. They're relatively easy to set up and, and, and to start playing. And fewer critical pieces that you just can't play this game without this piece or without, say, if there's a game, then you can't play the game without 12 of the pieces that are in the game, then, and they're all really cool looking, then pretty much you've got to count on not being able to play this game. Because, <laughs> because there's a chance that during play that some of the pieces will walk off or get damaged, or just that something will happen to you know any of the various elements of the game that make it unplayable. But on the other hand, if it's like, well, we're playing Hive, and perhaps one of the, the uh, tiles gets you know, damaged or disappears. Well, it doesn't matter which one it is or what they look like. You could cut another one out of foam and, or, you know, out of cardstock and still play the game. Then, you know, it might look a little weird, but you could still do it. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, following that as well, and I completely agree with you. Another factor on that there is wear and tear. You know, these are games that are going to get used regularly. Um, you know, they're, they're not belonging to the kids that are playing them and, and will then, you know, tend to be, you know, dinged around a little bit more perhaps than usual. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're certainly getting a lot of play and, and can they stand up to that wear and tear or is the board going to tear or the cards going to end up, you know, tattered or the, the pieces going to break? Those are things that are worth considering as well. And we've kind of talked about this before, so we, yeah, we have, it's ground yeah. well trodden for us, and people are going to think that we have nightmares of, oh my gosh, sticky fingers touching our board games. So <laughs> I think uh, we can move on unless there's something else. What are, what are some of the other secondary issues that we can No, I, you know, I'm thinking, I, I, I say this because the other night actually playing some of the games with the kids from the Smith family, we were playing a game called Spooky Stairs, and I know I've spoken about this before. It's a basic roll and move game where people have got, you know, different colored pieces, you roll a dice and you're trying to be the first to get up the stairs doesn't seem like there's much in it you know from that point of view but um, if a ghost is rolled you cover up the pieces with these ghost pieces which have magnets inside of them and so when you pick the ghost piece up the player piece is magnetically held on the inside of it and you can't see what color is which you know all the ghosts 
looked the same. Um, but uh, the, this, these games I might have been played many, probably now hundreds of times um, by kids, and all the ghost pieces now, um, it's like a set of marked cards <laughs> when playing. So the memory aspect is, is gone. But uh, So that's something else that I think is worth considering as well to some extent. Right, and now with a bunch of these cards, um, if you have card issues, you can get card sleeves. So that's another thing that we can talk about at some point is, if we don't get time today is what else can you buy for your collection to help extend the life of your collection? So Fantasy Flight has some great card sleeves, and there are a bunch of other ones out on the market that you can get to just sort of protect your stuff. Um, so I think that there's something overall in in the collection development policy that, that we should talk about and there's the theory of the um that the guys on the game on podcast which is no longer with us have talked about it. it's called the jones theory and that has to do with the don't buy games that are going to replace other games in your collection or if you are replacing a game you can get rid of it well it's kind of tough in some of our institutions to get rid of games and you sort of want to keep them as a backup but the you know using the Jones theory when applied to purchasing your games, you can say, well, if I buy these games, these other games won't come into play. So you might say we want to do a whole bunch of economic games, but maybe we don't need so many games that uh, require trading or that require uh, resource production or or whatever it is that one game is going to eclipse another and make it useless. So you might think that this game is the greatest game in the world. But really, there's an, the almost greatest game in the world's already in your collection, and they both cover the same kind of stuff. You don't need to just advance to buy the newest of the new, especially when you're dealing, I think, with schools and uh, to some degree libraries as well, where the kids are going to be playing for X number of years, and then they're going to be moving on. It's not like they're going to be outgrowing... Um, it's not like your collection is going to get stale to them because they're going to come in, they're going to play for a while, and then they're going to move on to other activities or to new grades or whatever, where maybe a different collection, a different part of your collection is what's getting played. Yeah, I, you know, I, I listened to the game on podcast as well and enjoyed it. I don't know whether I subscribe to this theory, um, Don. I, you know, from a personal point of view, I can think of plenty of games that I like and I like other games that are very similar. Um, however, I also do see the point that sometimes you get a game that just does eclipse another game um, to the point where, you know, you think, why would I play that when I can play this? Um, I think that it is relevant in uh, game collection, as you say, and I think it's worth considering in the fact that you don't want to buy too many of the same thing or the same type of thing. But by the same token, um, you know, I think that having a bunch of a particular game can be a really good thing. Um, initially, when we built our collection, I went for as many different titles as possible just to really build, as I said before, the breadth of the collection, to build up you know, this, this great collection that we could use for games days and things like that. So you know, the kids play a game at a table, they can go to a different table and play a different game. They're not going to be stuck having to play you know, the same game every table they go to. Well, that's true, but the, the whole point of the theory is don't buy games that are going to make other games not get played. If you yeah. can buy games that are going to hit the table, that's perfectly fine. But uh, the whole premise is you want to maximize your collection for uh, you know, appropriate levels of diversity so that you're not holding on to games that just are going to be sitting on the shelf and never see use. And, yeah, and I think I, that, that's I, tough to argue with or no, argue no, against no, I, in I any don't. Case. I don't disagree with that. I just, you know, I, as it, as it's phrased in terms of, um, you know, this game, you know, replacing, you know, that game. You know, I think it's possible to like games that are, that are very similar. Um, and I think sometimes that can be handy in a class as well. And I think, you know, as I said, after we, after we really went out initially and bought a whole range of, of different games, one of the things we did do um, is go back and actually then buy multiple copies of the ones that seem to be really popular. And that's handy because, again, you can then, you know, use it with a larger group of kids each playing their, in, you know, each group of kids playing their individual copy, but all playing the same game. Um, right. You know, yeah, so... You you shouldn't be afraid to have a pilot program, which yeah. is to say, 
we're going to buy a few games and then based on the ones that we like, and we obviously, we think all the ones we're purchasing are going to be ones that the people who are participating in our program will like, but you never really know for sure. You usually don't know for sure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, then that's a great way to do it is purchase in stages, which is something we've never really talked about before. Because quite honestly, most people, when they're buying games for their programs, aren't going to have the ability to buy six of a copy of game no. just just to get it out into play. And we've done that uh, with video games, especially at the library, because we have the ability for our patrons to come in and play against each other on different consoles. So like we've got two copies of the new Halo at the library, and we're going to have a copy of Madden uh, the new Madden 13 at each of the different branches. And we've got several copies of Madden 12 and whatnot. So these games are going to be there for a while and, you know, we'll consolidate the older ones at other libraries so that they can, you know, have the fun of, Hey, we're going to play a bunch of this at the same time. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I think that's a really, really solid idea is to build that pilot program. And one of the things I, you know, it, it does sound very sort of geeky, but um, one of the things that I've found really ha- handy in that is trying to keep track of which games, you know, get come out of the cupboard and, and get onto the table when the kids are the ones picking the games, um, you know, and the games that, that come out most regularly, that hit the tables most often, Um are the games that I tend to look at when I'm looking at then, you know, rebuying games or, you know, building up multiples of a, of a particular game. Right. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, let's go ahead and talk about uh, spending your money at this point. Where can you buy games? And, of course, or where can you get games? You don't always have to buy them. And you can always make an appeal. And we've done this for chess sets. Is If you've got chess sets to donate to the library because we want to start teaching people how to play chess then uh, you, you can go ahead and do that. We'd love if people would do that. And we have had folks gotten by really cheap copies of this game at Walmart. And we've had other people actually donate. You know, we haven't had a whole lot of people donate chess sets, but we've had like three or four where, you know, someone buy the cheap ones from Walmart and just give them to us. And others would give us chess sets that they aren't using. Maybe a family member who liked the chess set had passed away. And and so they donated a wooden chess set. So that's pretty darn cool that you can have folks bring in games. Yeah, I think that's a really good um, source. And speaking of donations, something else um, that you can do is uh, write to game stores uh, or game publishing companies and um, let them know what you're doing and, and ask them very politely and humbly for um, or if they're interested in, in donating any games to your collection. And, um, you know, in the U.S., there's a lot of publishers based in the U.S. that do a lot to support um, education and libraries and whatnot. And so they may or may not respond in a positive way, but uh, you'll never find out if you don't ask. So uh, you can approach local vendors the same way, whether it's, you know, your big box store or if you have a a local brick and mortar store of a friendly local game store, then you can easily talk to them about saying, hey, we need to purchase games for our library. And what we'd like to do maybe is have you sell them to us at a cheaper rate. Maybe, you know, if you can tell them, sell them to us for what you purchased them for, but then you can stamp the inside of the box and the rules maybe with your logo or, you know, paste on your uh, business card onto the rules book somewhere. And then that way, anyone who comes in and plays will say, oh, look, I can get this game from, for example, the Freckled Frog, who sells games here locally in Paula's Island. And this was great for us because they're an educational toy and game store. And when they opened up, we were starting our games program and they've really helped us out quite a bit. And so we love the fact that they get games that we can't normally find at Walmart and they like us because we show off a bunch of the games that they're going to be selling. So it works very well for both of us. I think following that, you know, or moving, moving that on into a slightly different area, um, a lot of companies and, and businesses um, have a sort of charitable arm or branch to them. I know a lot of um, supermarkets and things like that over here in Australia, banks and uh, other companies um, run programs of community grants in their particular towns, um, and those can sometimes be a source of revenue for 
building a game collection with with a particular purpose in mind. Um, and I think it's worth keeping in mind there. You know, often these are community based things, and so um, you know, supporting a school or supporting a um, a community activity at a school is uh, something that some of these companies might be um, happy to support. Right. Um, and in fact, that's how my grant got started was through a local granting organization that uh, did does some smaller grants and some strategic grants. And the Freckled Frog and I are going to be actually applying to go to like the middle school or even the high school or some of the other schools and start a game pilot program where the whole premise is we create a game kit that will be able to travel from school to school so that the different schools can try out the games and see if they like them. And if so, then a year, next year when we apply for the next grant, uh, we're hopefully going to be able to put actual games at each school uh, that are there all the time. So it's just a way of sort of introducing the schools to the idea of games uh, and as well as um, introducing the Bunnell Foundation to utilizing uh, these games in schools instead of just doing it at the library, which is where they're now familiar, thanks to my previous grant. Oh, very good. Uh, and I think following that, you know, grants in general, you know, there are a lot of government grants out there, um, and this is obviously going to be very localised to your particular area, um, country or, or state or whatever else. Um, but there are, you know, I, I think most places governments um, provide grants and organisations provide grants for different things um, and different countries and different regions will have their particular avenues of, um, you know, letting people know about w what these grants are and how they can be applied for. But certainly, um, you know, writing submissions for grants is a great way of, um, you know, gaining revenue to build uh, uh, something or to, you know, to start something off. I talked a little bit um, a couple of episodes ago about a school in uh, Bendigo nearby here that um, was successful in gaining two grants from their local bank it totaled about $10,000 in all, um, and they used that money to build a games collection um, that was then uh, a borrowing collection so kids could borrow these games and take them home as, as their homework to replace the homework program. So, um, you know, something like that, a grant, um, whether it be from a private company or from the government, um, can be a great you know, sort of um, Kickstarter, I suppose, for your particular program. Uh, going into it, you need to have an idea of what it is that you want to do and, and how you're going to do it. Um, and you need to be very clear about the benefits of um, what it is you, you are going to be doing, you know. Right. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about socialisation and, and all that sort of stuff that I think are, you know, are, are really important factors in that. And if you're building a collection development document, all of this should be addressed in that as well. So while we don't have a collection development document, I actually had the grant paperwork that said, here's what we're doing and here's what we're trying to do. So that's what I built our collection development off of or our collection from. So, you know, it depends on which, which you're putting first, the chicken or the egg. But, you know, before you get through this process, you should have the ability to defend your project defend what games you're putting into your collection and say, this is why these are good. And, you know, even sometimes the games can be saying, well, these are games that the kids will play and that will act as stepping stones towards these other games that have these other really cool elements in it. That's not a bad game to have in your library. Yeah. And we were uh, in the initial phases at our school, um, the, the couple of different strategies that worked for us, um, were getting donations from companies overseas and uh, around Australia, as well as um, we were successful in gaining a grant and receiving an award for um, our, our games program in terms of, you know, fostering student leadership and socialisation. So, you know, I think being very clear about what it is you're doing and why you're doing it, what skills you hope uh, the, the people participating in the program will, will walk away with and so forth is very important. Now, the difficult thing is that the more libraries and schools do this, the less you're going to have uh, the ability to get them to uh, donate because it's like, oh, well, we'd love to donate to you, but we can give to up to 50 or 100 schools and perhaps we've already done that. So. <laughs> that is very true. And that's why, that's why probably looking at things that are local is going to be a more successful strategy. 
Don, we talked about um, donations and grants. What about just uh, cold hard cash? What, where, where, you know? Oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. There's one other thing. There's one other grant that we haven't talked about. Yep. And uh, there is at Fun Again Games, or so it's funagain.com. There they do grants, and as far as I know, it's only in the U.S. But you can check their website to verify. And once a month, they will give out some grants. You can apply for grants at, at their games. And I think this is really just a clever way of them figuring out what organizations are trying to support games and what sort of games are good for educational or institutional purposes. But for any kind of gaming club or uh, you know schools or libraries, you can go to funagain.com. Uh, and I just did a search at funagain.com grants, $100 grants. And it came right up as, as one of the choices. And I, you know, I just checked. It looks like the program's still going. Hopefully, it's still going by the time this episode comes out. Yep. But check that out and see what you can figure out uh, as far as uh, if they're still doing the grant. But right now, when we're recording this, they are. Yep. No, they're great. Uh, you know, it's fantastic to see companies stepping up and, and you know trying to promote games and so forth in schools and libraries and around the place like that. So, Don, um, you can get money from grants. You can get games donated to the school. What are some other ways of getting the cash that you need or the revenue you need to build a collection? Well, um, you can take cash donations to acquire certain games. And we've had uh, one of the clubs that we had here, they wanted a specific game. And I said, well, guys, I'm, I can't purchase that game. It doesn't make sense for me to purchase it for the library. And they're like, well, if someone brought it in, could we play it? I'm like, yes. Or if you guys wanted to raise the money yourself, have a whip around so that you could, you know, get a copy of the Spider-Man game or whatever it is, then then you can do that. And so they had their own little fundraiser just to purchase, you know, I think it was one or two games that were superhero based since it's their, uh, you know, manga, anime and gaming club. And uh, we ended up going out and purchasing it. And I still got to use the account card for the library uh, since the game was going into the library but you know they raised all the money for it yeah you know that's a, a fantastic idea and, and i think um you know another another one that is most obvious and, and i read this uh, quite a lot around the internet is people going in and setting up or, or starting games clubs taking in their own games um or using their own money to go and buy games to support the clubs that they're starting and uh, there's nothing wrong with this, obviously. Uh, you know, it's a fantastic thing to be to be generous with your game collection like that. Um, be aware that you know it may end up with with dings and dents and so forth. But you know, it's a fantastic thing. It's certainly how the games club um, at our school started. You know, with about probably five to twenty games out of my collection that had gone into the school. I've had about as many as a hundred of my games at the library at one time. Wow! So that well, I mean, you say that sounds like a lot, but it includes card games and. And stuff. Uh, it still sounds like a lot. Yes, but my wife said you have to get these out of the house because I guess it was a lot, and so like <laughs> I have just the place to take them. <laughs> so, so you're using using the library as your uh, storage away from home. Yes, yes, I am. <laughs> That's okay because the people at the library get to enjoy, you know, the experience of playing all those games at the same time. Absolutely. In fact, some of my games have been worn out there, but I figured that's just the cost of, uh, you know, being useful to me and the library at the same time. So. Yeah, and I, you know, that's the same. I've taken games in, and and I won't bring them back home. They're they're, they're past their prime, but um, you know, it's it's certainly a really great way of of, of initiating something. Um, and it can be a really useful teaser to show schools or an organisation, you know, like a library or whatever else. This is this is what I'm talking about because sometimes, you know, if you're a parent or um, you know someone going into a school or or a, you know patron going into a library and you say, hey, um, you know, I want to start a games club, you know, and and your particular school or your particular library is not familiar with what, what you mean by that, you know, in their head they're thinking things like, you know, Monopoly or um, Cranium or whatever it might be and um, it's a great opportunity for them to actually sit down and see, well, this is what you're talking about. Wow, I've never seen games like that. So, you know, it's a great can be a great teaser to show how valuable or how important um, such things can be. Yeah, it can prime the pumps. 
Exactly so. So what about budgets, Don? You've got a budget for your game collection? Um, I did have a budget, and now it's it's a very much uh, catch-as-catch-can because the grants run its course. Uh, So I find that I've really had to be a lot more price-conscious over the last six months. And that, you know, we had a small boon because I don't know if uh, worldwide how popular this is, but prior to Christmas, the weekend after American Thanksgiving, so usually that's on the uh, fourth Friday of the month of November, that uh, there's something called Black Friday, which goes on through to the next Monday as Cyber Monday, where there's a lot of discounting on games. And sadly, this year we missed out with a big sale, which is Microsoft had a bunch of video games on sale for $10 each. And there were some great games in that collection. And uh, I didn't even find out about it until it was over. But we did find over at Origins, um, the electronic arts store, that uh, we were able to get some great, great deals on games. And Amazon, of course, does price matching usually on Black Friday. So if somebody else has a deal... You can frequently go to Amazon and find, if not that exact same deal, something very comparable. And, you know, you can do a lot of bargain hunting the basically the day after the American Thanksgiving. And yeah. so I recommend that highly is plan up what you're looking for. And if a game's come out more than a month or two before that period, you can count on it being discounted somewhere. Unfortunately, the game that everybody wanted was not, since it came out like the Tuesday before Thanksgiving or a couple of Tuesdays before that, not on sale. But uh, a lot of other great games were. And oh, those are video games mostly that I was talking about. There are some board games, though, that go on sale, too, because I saw that some board game publishers and, and stores had discounts up as well. I think it's worth keeping an eye out for if you've got a local store, a game store that you particularly like, whether it's a, you know for computer games or board games or whatever else, um, keeping an eye out on you know their specials lists is a really great way of picking up games on the cheap. Um, and of course, you know, shopping online is a great way of doing that. But also, you know, if you've got a, a brick and mortar store, or, you know, an actual physical store that's nearby, um, you know, I'm, I, I know, um, you know, that there are stores that are very happy to support programs in their library or their school um, because, you know, they've got the potential then of, of, of having customers come into their store based on their experiences in the library or school. So, you know, they can be very supportive of games programs as well. Oh, right. Yeah, the, the local Target, um, you know, even though they had an online presence, they were selling like Telestrations for $18.00. And, uh, you know, but our, the freckled frog says, yeah, a patron from the library came in today and he bought this game. So it's always great to hear that you've got people from our institution who are going to visit and purchase games from the folks who have done so much to help us get our games programs up and running. Yeah. Um, what about thrifting, Don? This is something probably, you know, it's not, this is something that's a bit of an alien concept to me. I'm not sure um, whether that's because I'm just, um, you know, something that slipped me by or whether it's not something that happens in Australia as much as it does in America. But what is thrifting or, or shopping at thrift stores? I would say that thrifting works best when you're in a environment that has a fairly high density of population where a lot of folks will encounter, say, maybe they don't like games very much, but they got them for Christmas and they'll donate them to the thrift store or, you know, someone's passed on and a whole bunch of their goods are then, you know, thrifted that you can find some wins. Now, I've had very little success myself because, quite honestly, you know, there are a lot of people here in the Georgetown County area who shop thrift stores as their primary purchasing because we live in a fairly economically depressed area. So it hasn't had a lot of success for me to go to our local thrift stores and find find what we need for games. And when you buy a game at a thrift store, about 80% of the time, you'll find pieces missing or some significant yeah. damage to the board or to the games. Oh, look, someone spilled coffee, but the guys who are checking in the games don't necessarily check for all the pieces. They just put it on the shelf, and if it doesn't sell after so long, then it gets remaindered and thrown out. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about sales. How how do you keep in in um, in touch with the, your various stores that you shop at, and um, you know try and keep abreast of the specials and sales and things like that? Gotcha. Well, there are two primary ways that I keep in touch, and one is for our iOS devices, and I'm sure they have similar programs on other tablets, uh, 
you know, that have storefronts and it's called app shopper. And I, I may have mentioned this before, but it's uh, for the iPad and iPhone. You can put in the games that you're looking for and it will pop up when tell you whenever they're having a sale or whenever they've updated. So, you know, I may have two or 300 programs in my app shopper account that I'm looking for, but because I'm cheap, I, I don't purchase them unless I need them, you know, or unless they've got a big sale. So if you're yeah. having to support this kind of technology in your institution, then, you know, you'll, they're going to want to have an app shopper account. Um, and another place that I go is, and I apologize to our listeners. Uh, there's a podcast and website that's, uh, the initials are CAG C A G and it stands for cheap ass gamer. So you can go to cheapassgamer.com and Basically, the guy who owns that site has affiliates with a bunch of different programs, and I think maybe Amazon and, and some other ones. And if you purchase through his thing, whenever there's a sale, it goes up that says, hey, uh, you know, there's Amazon sales or there's Target sales or who knows where else he's got affiliates to. Um, but yeah, he's going to he advertises sales all the time and you can purchase your games. Usually it's electronics games. I haven't seen him really do anything in the board game arena. Um, but uh, that's a great way to to keep your eye on those collections. Yeah. So what about a place like Tanga? Oh, yeah. Uh, Tanga, sale of the day sites. And uh, Tanga's a great one for people in the U.S. I don't think they even ship to Canada, but I could be wrong on that. No, they don't ship internationally. He says with some bitterness and resentment in his voice. Well, quite honestly, Giles, if they did, you'd be losing all of the benefit that you got from shopping at Tanga. And some of the neat things about <laughs> yeah, Tanga is that uh, there were a couple of games that, you know, they're $30, $40 games that they were selling for 7 or 8 bucks a piece. And if it's a game that's appropriate for your collection, you can usually buy them by up to the case for the same amount of shipping or for a very close amount of shipping. So, um, for example, there was a game that they sold a while back called Hollywood Blockbuster, which is a great game where you're trying to build the cast and, uh, you know, technology elements for, uh, to put on movies. And I really like this game. It's based on another game that I really like. And I managed to buy a whole case of it. And I had gifts to give away for this just because I could buy them for five bucks a piece. And it's a 30 or $40 game, I believe. Yeah. And I just gave the last one away this past year to a guy I knew would really like it. So I had this on hand. So, I've used them to purchase games. We got Obongo Extreme, which is a pattern matching game. Uh, and uh, it's really kind of helped us build out our collection just by being able to buy something for each of our branches of the library for about the cost of buying two copies or even just one copy uh, for itself at a normal store. And I, I hate to... Uh, I really like brick and mortar stores or local shops, and I'm not a big fan of shopping online for games that you know require some salesmanship or some knowledge in them to sort of help move them so for board games i don't usually like to shop online so much uh, hopefully we don't have an online sponsor by that point <laughs> by the time this comes up but um you know for video games which are basically just commodities and they're all being sold through bulk market stores like gamestop or best buy or walmart then buy them wherever you can as cheaply as you can uh, because you, the ability for you to find a local store that sells new copies of games, of video games, and that that's their primary source of income, almost non-existent these days. Yeah. Yeah, and I think otherwise, you know, obviously most companies will have uh, newsletters you can sign up for, uh, Twitter accounts, uh, Facebook accounts, and often they'll have specials on those as well. So, you know, that's always well worth checking out. And if you do, if you're lucky enough to have a, a local game store that um, you're friendly with, you know, um, it's always really good to make sure that you, you build a connection with them. Right, yeah, uh, culturing, cultivating that type of relationship is, you know, is a big deal. And, you know, when I go into the freckled frog, if he can cut me a deal on something, he'll do it now because he knows that he's earned customers from having his stuff at our library. Uh, but you know, sometimes he can't because he's like, Oh, I just got this in and it's in limited supply. And so I know I'm not going to be able to get you know, new, you know, new versions of it for six months because say Tsuro or something is out of print. Uh, and, and I've basically, I've got to make, 
you know, full value on these games. And it's like, okay, I understand. Do what you can when you can. And, uh, and it all helps out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are there any summarizing thoughts, Don? Know what you're going to do before you do it. Uh, have the ability to look for sales because if you do it um, far enough in advance, then you can take advantage of holiday sales. After, oh, one thing we didn't talk about at all is uh, before and after the Christmas holidays, you can usually hit bookstores and they expand their like Barnes and Noble or I don't even know what the other books a million or whatever it is. Um, and before, um, before and after, th- uh, before Thanksgiving through the week or two after New Year's, they really increase the amount of gifts, uh, gift style board games that they have. That, that you can go in there and find sales. And of course, from Christmas through two weeks after New Year's, they're going to start slashing the prices because all of a sudden they need their floor space back for their normal inventory. Yep. Um, so uh, that's a great time to go and do your shopping and sort of bolster your collection as well. But don't just buy something because it's cheap. No, that's right. Yeah, make sure that whatever you buy, you know, is something that's actually going to come off the shelf. There's no use having, you know, 100 games if 80 of them sit uh, on the shelf unused. Yeah, no, nothing is more expensive than a game that never got played. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so that's it. That's my big tips. How about you? Do you have anything else to say? No, I think um, I think that's about it. I think you summarised it at the end there perfectly. You know, make sure that that when you do get games, you're getting games that that you're you know you're, you're definite in the sort of games that you want. That those games are fitting um, your particular vision, your your particular desires in terms of um, what you want to do with your program. I think that's the key thing. And don't be afraid to let people bring in their own games to play. And don't be afraid to occasionally say, well, this was the wrong choice. Because if you made a bad purchasing decision, it's a lot better for you to know why or what caused it to be the wrong game for your environment. And it's possible that you can change your programming to make it work. Or it's also possible that you can avoid making those bad decisions in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in any case, if uh, if there are any uh, other topics or ideas or um, thoughts surrounding this topic of buying games or if you've got any questions or comments, please um, let us know. You can email us at schoolsandlibraries at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, uh, gameschoolslibraries.com, uh, and you can make a comment over in our guild over at Board Game Geek, which you can find from our website. Um, In any case, until next time, this is Giles Pritchard. And Donald Dennis. And you've been listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. Games in Schools and Libraries is kindly hosted by the Games for Educators website. You can find them at www.g4ed.com. You can subscribe to their newsletter, check out games through their game finder, and of course, it's the home of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. Drop by and post comments on the episodes, we love feedback. Games in Schools and Libraries is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. To view a copy of this license, visit our webpage at the Games for Educators website.